we've been journeying with Peter and Kathy Ignatius for uh, for over a couple of decades, and um, appreciate the update on them. Uh, you notice Kathy in there. Kathy, uh, if we continue to pray for her, she is on her sixth out of six rounds of chemotherapy for her breast cancer, and uh, seemed to be doing really good that day. So we appreciate that. And uh, for any of you that have parents that traveled like both ways uphill in the snow to school. Just remind them that there are some people who travel only 95 miles up and down the mountains for seven days to get to school, and um, it might be an interesting conversation. <laughs> there was a young woman who left for college about this time one fall, and before she asked, or before she left, she asked her mother to look after only two things: right, the the potted violets in her room and the fish in her aquarium. And her mother, who was prone to um, be forgetful for things and not take care of things that she said she would take care of, said, no problem, I've got this, go to college, have a great time. Well, about two weeks later, she called, and in the midst of the conversation, he asked her how, how the violets were doing. She said, well, well, I forgot to water them, and I walked into the room one day, and they were all dead. <laughs> about two weeks later, she talked to her, and she said, Mom, how, how are my fish doing? I said, well... We got to feed them, and I walked in one day, and the uh, fish were dead. And after a long pause, she, she uh, asked with some anxiety in her voice, Mom, how's Dad doing? <laughs> uh, it's easy sometimes to lose track of the commitments that we make, um, and it's really easy to get distracted in life from the things that we ought to be doing, and yet... Um, not not all not all commitments are equal, okay? And not all distractions are random. Nehemiah is set on rebuilding this wall of Jerusalem. It's what he came back for, or what he went to Jerusalem for. It's what God has called him to do. And yet the enemies of God are set on derailing him from his purpose. Okay, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 with me, and we're going to look at several ways that the enemy tried to distract Nehemiah from his purposes, and we're also going to look at the ways that um, Nehemiah gives us to help us keep our focus on our purpose and on our commitments in the midst of all of those distractions. And the first strategy that Nehemiah is going to display for us is, is that we need to resolve to reject those distractions. Okay, to reject them. Now, beginning in verse 1, let's look at how the enemies of um, the Jewish people that we've read about for the first five chapters, how they try to distract Nehemiah from the work. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When word came from, or when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, Geshem the Arab, <laughs> Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, there's a lot harder words in this chapter than that, believe me, all right? Um, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them 
the same answer. Now, now, for a number of reasons, and not the least of which is that this project had the blessing of King Artaxerxes, for a number of reasons, these enemies of theirs, this alliance, if you would, this trio, could not defeat the work on the wall through military means. Okay? And, and in fact, short of the gates, at this point, the wall has been completed. And because Artaxerxes blessed it, they would be in trouble if they used their militaries to try to do something against it. So they changed their efforts to deception and to distraction. Now, um, past experiences, we've read about some of them over the first five chapters, they've led Nehemiah to question their motives about why they would want to meet him. And beyond that, like the proposed location of the meeting is minimally about 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. So simply to meet with them in their day and time would involve several days journey, which would mean several days away from the project and the work that he was supposed to be doing. Beyond that, he, he simply knew they were trying to set a trap for him. So in each of the more, four attempts, he provides this refusal. And instead, Nehemiah responds by reminding, reminding them that he has a big job to do, right? and he's focused on that task. Now, short of the bad intentions of others, which is what's going on here, I think these verses remind us like, how we should respond when we face opportunities, sometimes that's in quotes, <laughs> that distract us from the purpose of God for our lives. Right? Or if we're not careful, um, not only does God have a purpose for our life, but it seems like everyone else has a purpose for our lives as well. And they're certainly willing to bring that. But fulfilling God's purpose, okay, it requires that we, um, we make a commitment. A commitment to avoid detours. A commitment to avoid distractions. If we're going to succeed, I like how John Ortberg put it. He said, for most of us, the great danger is not that we're going to renounce our faith. It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. If God has called you to lead a family, if God has called you to initiate a project or to pour into someone's life, or to accomplish a task, or to be fruitful for his kingdom in a specific way, you can expect that the enemy will provide a number of distractions to keep you from honoring God through your efforts. And if the enemy doesn't, I can assure you that life will. Right? Establish priorities. Know your commitments. Remain focused but it's difficult right it's difficult to 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 remain focused when when life provides you this buffet of options and opportunities and like most people when they go to buffet they fill their plates too full and in this life with so many options and opportunities many of us simply do the same thing nehemiah challenges us Stay focused on what really matters. 
And then when the enemy intensifies their attack, Nehemiah teaches us second that um, to challenge attacks that are personal. They're about to get, uh, like to cross a line here in the text. Go from, hey, come meet with us, to a personal attack on him. Now, um, distractions are hard. But they're also very, like, they're different. If you watch the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner as, as Robin Hood, right? you remember the scene where he came upon this, in, they're in the woods, and this um, young man is, is shooting target practice with his bow and arrows. And he draws back to shoot, and, and Robin asks him, can you shoot amid distractions? And then just before he lets loose of the arrow toward the target, Robin kind of flicks his ear with the feather on a bow, and, the, and the, the, the arrow goes way above and beyond the target. Well, after the laughter lies, dies down, Maid Marian says, can you? And so Robin draws his bow, and he points towards the target, and just before he lets loose of the arrow, Maid Marian just leans beside him and flirtatiously just kind of blows air in his face. Well, he missed the target, and it hit a tree, and it bounces off the tree and almost hits a person, right? Distractions. Like, they come in all types. Some of them are painful. Others of them can be pleasant. The result, though, is the same with those distractions. We miss God's mark. We don't hit our target. And what we're going to see next is that Nehemiah is challenged, but he's challenged by lies that are being told about him. It's a different tactic, particularly hurtful, I think, beginning in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 6. It says, remember, he sent the request four times. Then the fifth time, Samballot sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and you've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Nehemiah says in verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands, Lord. Now, letters in Nehemiah's day were usually rolled up and then they were sealed with a, 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 a patch of wax by which the, the ruler or the leader would imprint their, their ring on the wax to note that it was sealed and who it was sealed by. This letter wasn't sealed on purpose so that it would be read by the people along the way and would plant these lies in their minds about what was really going on in Jerusalem and the intentions of Nehemiah, their leader. And you can bet that the servant of Sanballat made sure that this letter was seen by many eyes along the way. Listen, there's a personal attack, right? Against Nehemiah's motives, against his integrity. 
the fact that he had told everybody one thing and they're saying and Sambal's saying no this is what's really going on okay now remember from chapter one king artaxerxes chapter two actually king artaxerxes approved this project based on his trust in nehemiah if you go back to our study of the book of Ezra in chapter 4, you'll remember that the same King Artaxerxes once shut down the project of the rebuilding in Jerusalem because of lack of trust in the people who were leading the project. Well, to say that these Jews were planning a rebellion and that Nehemiah was aspiring to be king, and that furthermore he'd, appro he'd appointed prophets to proclaim that truth, to legitimize his efforts. Like, if that were true, it would bring the whole Persian army to Jerusalem to destroy everything that they had done all over again. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah knew that. It would destroy everything that they'd been working for. And, and Sanballat, he hoped that the threats of spreading these false rumors well that would lure Nehemiah to come to this meeting where he could do him harm right now the interesting part of this is like that made complete sense to Sambalat that's how he lived hungry for power hungry for prestige hungry for authority all of those things it didn't make sense to him that someone like Nehemiah a leader would leave the, the plush life he had in Susa to come to Jerusalem simply to build the walls of a city for God's people and the glory of God. He, he himself was on, Sambal was on a quest for power and glory, and he just assumed everyone else was as well. And as we've come to see from Nehemiah now in these chap six chapters, you know, it doesn't surprise us. His response is he, he, he states the truth. And he dismisses the charges, and he says a prayer, and he gets back to work. Right? He, he didn't mount a, fent, a defense. He didn't investigate or question the servant about whose eyes might have seen that letter so he could do damage control. He didn't craft his own letter to King Artaxerxes to say, hey, there's some rumors going on. I want you to know everything's good. Don't pay attention to him. He didn't do any of that. Like, how refreshing these kinds of responses would be in our own world of political nonsense, right? Where stories are fabricated, accusations are leveled, words are twisted, doubts are planted, and truth is often nowhere to be found. Nehemiah's greatest defense was his integrity. It defended him. And it allowed him to remain focused even in the midst of greater and more personal chaos brought against him. And I think here is an incredibly important lesson for us to learn today. Okay? Living with integrity, living with holiness, it allows God to protect us against the lies and against the slander that the devil, our real enemy, might create. The Bible calls Satan the accuser for a reason, but our defender, the Holy Spirit, is greater. Listen, truth, um, holiness, 
and ultimately the cross of Jesus allow us to live in peace even when the accuser raises up charges against us and they remind us and the Holy Spirit reminds us that God did not make a mistake when he called us for his purposes it's important so so the work continues right and so do the attempts to stop it and as we continue on in the text we see that that God's leader Nehemiah through his next response to chaos, is going to refuse to compromise. Remember, we're looking at ways to stay away from the distractions of life, right? And stay focused on his purpose. Nehemiah is going to refuse to compromise. Pick up with me in verse 10. He says, One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahatabel, who was shut in at his house, at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night, Nehemiah. They're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, my God. Because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Now, to be clear, what this Shemaiah was wanting Nehemiah to do was to go into the temple, into the holy place in the temple, and hide there because people were supposedly coming to kill him. Well, for Nehemiah, running in fear was not an option. I mean, think about what's been going on and all of the challenges he's faced from these other enemies for nearly two months now. He wasn't about to start running at this point. But more importantly, since Nehemiah was just a normal man, okay, you read through what's going on here in chapter 6, since he wasn't a priest, he knew that only priests were allowed to go into the holy place. And the enemies knew if they could get him to go somewhere he was not supposed to go, he was not allowed to go, that it would um, discredit him because he would have gone against God's standards and it caused people to question, did he really honor God? Does he really do what God says? Now, I'm not sure if the order here is important. I want to read something into the text, but, but I find it interesting that, that after he uh, pushed back on Shammai, after he gave him the answer, I'm not going to do that. It says that he recognized that that God hadn't sent the prophet, right? Were, were, were his eyes open? I, I don't know the order, but I think it's a really clarifying principle for us as followers of God. So catch this. If you don't catch anything else, catch this, right? We've got to evaluate what we are considering to potentially be God's specific will for our lives and evaluate it against what we know God's specific will is in his word. Okay. When you're trying to decide, is this the way God is leading me, or am I just feeling this? Am I just thinking this? Did I come up with it on my own? 
Well, one of the questions is, is what I'm being asked to do, does it match with God's word? If it doesn't, like in the case of Nehemiah, it's obviously not God's will for my life. If it does, then it's something that God would permit in his will in my life. He knew not to go into this holy place because he knew God's word. That's what clued Nehemiah into what was happening. Okay? Know God's word when you're seeking God's will and you'll be able to make to make sure the two match. That's what Nehemiah did. Now, if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah through before, what comes next may surprise you. Because what we're going to find here at the end of chapter 6 is that the job is done, but the work continues. Okay, now, read with me beginning in verse 15 of Nehemiah. The job's done, but the work continues. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, okay? in 52 days. Now, on your notes, I put a picture of that temple. There's a picture up on the screen. Think about the city of Jerusalem. The temple is built. The walls, still, when Nehemiah came, remain piles of rubble. Okay? The gates had all been burned. And in less than two months, in 52 days, they built this wall and they hung the gates in Jerusalem. It's amazing. In fact, in verse 16, it says, When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them, for many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshalem, son of Berechiah. Okay? So, he, here's what we came to note. Okay? This is an uh, appealing back the curtain. The reason that this Tobiah has such inroads into the Jews in the city of Jerusalem is because he and his son both married into prominent families in Jerusalem. Now, remember what I said earlier, Tobiah was an Ammonite. The Ammonites were the enemies of Israel, and God had forbidden that the Israelites would marry the Ammonites. But because they disobeyed, they had this ongoing problem. Verse 19, moreover, they kept reporting to me the good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Now, you would think that finishing that temple wall in 52 days would receive a little bit more fanfare in the text, right? And later on in the book, there is going to be a, a big celebration for it, okay? But Nehemiah knew that God had called him to build a wall, but that in the bigger picture, God was building a nation, okay? The wall was not the point, <laughs> The wall only provided protection for God's people so that they could again live as a righteous example, a righteous people of God's influence on them. The wall was built, but there was more work to be done to build this nation. Now, allow me just to kind of bring the camera lens back and take a bigger picture, okay? And then specifically come to you and I. Right. Let's look in the New Testament. And I, I want to take a closer look at this idea of you and I focusing specifically 
on what is God's will for our lives, his plan for each of us. And I want to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, to help bring some clarity for us as we apply just some thoughts from this chapter. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself would not be disqualified for the prize. What is your prize in this life? And are you seeking a prize beyond this life, like Paul was? There's a preacher generations back named C.T. Studd. He, he wrote a poem, and you might be um, familiar with a line that's repeated throughout the poem. Um, you, you might have heard it before, but probably have not heard the whole thing. And I want to read it to you today. Okay? And I want you to evaluate your life. And I want you to decide if maybe there needs to be some conversation about your life <laughs> and the prize you're seeking and getting on the right page with that. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if there is. Here, here's how it goes. He wrote two little lines I heard one day. Traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, 
thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I will say t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed.